Yasas. Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast about all things Greek for Greeks, Hellenophiles, and anybody who's interested in learning about other cultures. I'm Pamela Deodis Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. Uh, just a heads up, I have a head cold, so hopefully <clears throat> I can be understood. In our last episode, we talked about the Parthenon, the great temple of Athena that sits on the Acropolis, being the center of pagan religious life for a thousand years. During this time, the temple and all of the marble sculptures it contained remained in all of its classical splendor. In the third century, it suffered a great fire set by marauders or pirates. The wooden beams of the roof were destroyed. It survived an earthquake that century. Careful repairs were made. But during the fourth century, Christianity, which had been slowly edging out the old religions over the centuries, was proclaimed the official religion of the Roman Empire, just before it permanently split into the Eastern and Western Empires. The Roman Empire had been one, then split between two emperors, who I think were brothers, then back to one. Roman Empire needed its own podcast, and there are actually at least two podcasts called Roman Empire. But back to us. In Constantinople, only a decade or so after he was baptized a Christian, Emperor Theodosius outlawed paganism, which he had been pretty tolerant of before. Not out of piety, because the Gospels do not condone such malarkey, but, like all these guys, for political reasons. The Parthenon was soon converted into a Christian church, as were many of the old pagan temples. The Christians blocked the east entrance, so they would have to enter from the west, which is Christian tradition. Icons were painted around the inside of the main chamber, an altar was built, a bishop's chair replaced the missing 40-foot Athena. A narthex was added to the west side of the building, an apse to the east of the altar, and some of the marbles were removed to make way for windows. Where did they go? I don't have the answer to that. Honestly, why would you mess with perfection? I read a few articles that repeated the claims of a circa 1930s German archaeologist saying early Christians defaced many of the 92 metopes surrounding the upper portion of the outside of the temple. They depicted stories of Greek mythology. But then I read a convincing piece by a scholar researching and debunking these claims. Dr. Benjamin Anderson, assistant professor of art history at Cornell, has a list of reasons why that did not happen including the argument that the Christians had 1,000 years to deface many more statues inside and around the Parthenon that were much easier to reach. The Metopes were very high up on the outside of the temple. They would have required scaffolding to get to them. They didn't touch the statues in the large uh, pediments, the larger statues in the pediments either, and some of them were naked. The remaining sculptures inside where people were praying weren't damaged. Possibly the Christians renamed and retooled the stories of the statues to fit in with Christian dogma. One of the Metopes became well known as a representation of the Annunciation. Or maybe they just appreciated their culture enough not to go crazy. But dang. Another explanation for the damaged Metopes was a man referred to as Sultan Mansur, who according to the writings of later historians and travelers like Evlia Celebe, raided Athens and the Acropolis on several occasions in medieval times. It wasn't unusual for raiders to deface the outside of important buildings just to be rude and intimidating. And I haven't found a mention of the defacement of the Metopes of the Parthenon before this time. If anyone has evidence otherwise, please share. Nevertheless, 
Chalabé was so impressed by the Parthenon, he wrote in 1667, a work less of human hands than of heaven itself, it should remain standing for all time. So it was still an incredibly beautiful structure, and the Parthenon became a major destination for Christian pilgrimage. The Franks and Romans popped in during the Fourth Crusade in 1204 to attack their fellow Christians because, of course, that's what white Jesus wanted, and turned the Parthenon into a Catholic cathedral complete with bell tower, after some looting and raping and pillaging, of course. We'll get into the interesting relations between Catholicism and Orthodoxy another time. According to Greek reporter, in spite of all this, the building maintained its architectural coherence and most of its decorations until the 17th century. That's when the Byzantine Empire fell to the Ottomans, over a thousand years after the Parthenon was first Christianized. It was briefly made into a mosque, wiping out most signs of Christianity, scrubbing off the icons, removing the altar, and turning the nearby bell tower the Catholics had built into a minaret. It's a very manly thing to do, making over other people's temples or churches into the victor's church or temple or mosque, or defacing ancient monuments to prove your God is better. God is not so petty. The Ottomans don't seem to have initially done anything really horrible to the Parthenon or its statues while it was a mosque. What the Ottomans did do is create circumstances in which the Parthenon would be heavily damaged, then neglected, and then turned into a tourist dream of souvenirs for cheap. They officially basically didn't care. After its brief time as a mosque, the Ottomans made a garrison out of the Parthenon. One of the sultans briefly returned it to the Christians, and the local Greeks with some clout with the community hinted at insurrection, he took it back. They put a harem for one of the officials into another one of the Acropolis monuments that had been turned into a church. That's harsh. Finally, in 1687, during the Second Venetian-Turkish War, the Parthenon was used as a munitions magazine, a gunpowder depot. The story goes the Turks figured the Venetians, who were on the assault, would never risk destroying such a beautiful and revered symbol of antiquity and civilization. So that made it a good place to store items that were risky due to their explosive properties. The Venetians found out what they were up to. A Turkish turncoat escaped behind enemy lines and spilled the beans. So the Venetian commander, Francesco Morosini, who reportedly grieved for the Turkish exploitation of the Greeks, didn't think twice when he shot off martyrs directly at the Temple of Athena, setting off the explosives and blowing the roof off the Parthenon. Sympathetic Morosini uh, had sent 700 cannonballs into the western facade. Banagiamo, 2,000 years minimal damage than this. There was a lot of damage. The roof was gone, walls were cracked or collapsed, a number of columns were destroyed, and some of the sculptures. But many marbles actually survived. Morosini's sympathy for the Greeks didn't stop him from stealing a few of the larger statues, and through his oafishness and greed, his men accidentally destroyed a few trying to get them down. Ultimately, the Ottomans retained control over Greece for another 120-odd years, in spite of the Venetian pyrotechnics, and the Parthenon was left to the elements. Wealthy European travelers and artists continued visiting the Parthenon when they made their word travels to broaden their education in the classics, sharpen their appreciation for great art, and in some cases, take home souvenirs. According to Tessa Solomon in Art News, in the 1770s, Richard Chandler, an English scholar and antiquarian writing of the Parthenon and one of the era's most influential travel books on Greece, 
called Travels in Asia Minor, quote, encouraged Western travelers to pillage its treasures in the interest of preservation. And so travelers, sailors, many Europeans, often French or Brits, broke off fingers and toes and noses of the statues because that's how you preserve something. Actually, Europeans and Americans have always behaved badly on treasured heritage sites and probably didn't need Chandler's permission to snatch a piece of history any more than they need encouragement to carve their initials into the Colosseum or draw on the walls of ancient Japanese temples. As tourists began stealing bits of the ancient marbles, which were still scattered all over the ground from the Venetian attack long ago, enterprising Turks reportedly began deliberately destroying more marbles to sell in pieces to the tourists. Theodor Vretzos, in his history, A Shadow of Magnitude, The Acquisition of the Elgin Marbles, says more damage was done to the Acropolis by the Turks than in 2,000 years of invasions by Romans, Franks, Persians, and Venetians. The Turks did the most damage until the appearance of a pretentious little snot, Scott, called Lord Elgin. Thomas Bruce, the seventh Earl of Elgin, was a cranky middle-aged man with a small purse and a struggling estate in Scotland called Broom Hall. He'd married Mary Hamilton Nesbitt, the daughter of a wealthy member of parliament and a noblewoman, and shortly after, in 1799, Elgin was appointed British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. He used his time there, the might of the British army in Egypt, and the fascination Turkish bureaucrats had for his pretty, much younger wife to run amok on Greece's greatest archaeological sites, in particular the Parthenon. The Ottomans and Brits had not been fans of each other initially, but neither of them liked the French. Napoleon's army was invading the Middle East, trying to stake claims in Egypt, much to the chagrin of the Ottomans, who considered the Middle East their territory. A note here, Napoleon had tried to make off with Greek treasures earlier, when the French were on good terms with the Ottomans, and I'd like to see if it's in their museums. Anyway, the French were invading Ottoman territory, and the Brits, in 1798 until 1801, intervened on the side of the Turks. Not out of sympathy, but because they had very successful commercial and political interests in Egypt, and they didn't want the French cutting in. The Brits ultimately drove the French out of Egypt, making Turkey for a brief time very pro-British, and making Elgin a de facto hero to the Ottomans, as if he were somehow personally responsible for this victory. So by the time Elgin was appointed ambassador, the Brits and French were already duking it out in Egypt. His initial requests for access to the Parthenon were denied. Elgin was stationed in Constantinople, but as soon as Britain ruled the day in the Middle East, he and the wife, their ever-increasing number of children, and the Lord's minions traveled throughout Greece, admiring and coveting the ancient monuments and ruins. They had class. The Greek monuments, not the Elgins. Elgin had long had dreams of decorating the family estate back in Scotland in high style. Impress his contemporaries, who overall didn't seem to have a very high opinion of him. And he planned on finding what he needed in Greece. There are letters written to an artist working for him and to others about his plans to decorate his home and property with whatever marbles he could get his hands on. In fact, he detailed room by room where he believed the marbles would be most attractive. He was finagling from the moment he was introduced to his Turkish counterparts, who, as we said, demurred at first. But once British victory in Egypt was complete, they were suddenly more willing to help a noble out, and he was milking it for everything the British Empire was worth. 
Elgin wrote that all Turkish objections to his desire for access to the Parthenon marbles, quote, disappeared from the moment of the decided success of our arms in Egypt. In proportion with the change of affairs and our relation towards Turkey, the facilities of access were increased to me and to all English travelers, and about the middle of the summer of 1801, all difficulties were removed. It was the possession of a firman, a permit issued by the grateful Ottoman Empire, that gave Elgin, in his mind, free reign to pillage Greece, even though that's not what it said. Elgin's artists on site of the Parthenon were given permission by the firman to draw the marbles and make casts of the marbles, quote, in place. So making casts of the statues or marble carvings where they were, attached to the building. But that's not how it played out. The Furman also allowed for Elgin to, quote, excavate around the building for fragments, meaning those marbles already broken up by the explosion and minor looting, according to historians and translators who've examined the Furman over centuries. According to Bruce Clark in Athens, City of Wisdom, the deputy of the Grand Vizier who granted the Furman stated that Elgin was given, quote, the liberty to take away sculptures and inscriptions which did not interfere with the works or walls of the citadel but Elgin interpreted the firm as open season on the treasures of Greece. Clark says on July 31st, 1801, so shortly after granted the firman, the first of the remaining metopes, quote, were yanked off the Parthenon and hauled to the ground. According to Vretos, based on original journals and letters written by the participants of the looting, while the firman gave Elgin's workers access to the Parthenon, he and his entourage toured the countryside, swiping what they could. Elgin was aided and abetted by Reverend Philip Hunt, the official British chaplain of the Istanbul Embassy, who, according to Clark, was also entrusted with diplomatic mission. Diplomatic missions apparently including finding beautiful and well-preserved aging Greek treasures to pillage. On their travels, Elgin stole two ancient marble seats from a church in Yenice. I believe this refers to the village now called Yenitsa near Thessaloniki. A British subject, Lady Montague, had tried to buy the same seats in 1718, over 70 years earlier, but she was refused. Elgin was not to be refused. He was accompanied by Turkish soldiers. Vretos recounts the story. At first, the Greek priests wailed and tried to prevent the crewmen from taking the seats, but when they realized Lord Elgin had a firman, they withdrew in tears, end quote. Ignoring a firman not only meant reprisals against the priests, but against the entire village. When resisting any order set by Ottoman rule, retribution meant the raising of churches in entire villages. The men would be executed, the women and children sold into slavery. Vretos, who had help from Turks translating these Ottoman documents, says the firman from the Pasha of the Athens area specifically threatened death to anyone interfering with Elgin's will. And he was only too happy to take advantage of this over and over again throughout the countryside and the islands of Greece, but most especially at the Parthenon. Susan Nagel, a former professor of humanities and an Elgin apologist, wrote a biography of Elgin's unfortunate spouse called Mistress of the Elgin Marbles. In it, she says, quote, the Ottomans had no regard and less consideration of Hellenic culture, which was true, Europeans, on the other hand, were seized with a fever for the ancient world, especially Greece. And I will extrapolate and add the feverish Brits had no regard for others' cultures or heritage. If the Brits wanted something, they took it. 
Giovanni Battista Lucieri, a landscape painter from Naples, originally employed by Elgin to make the sketches and casts of the Parthenon marbles, became his accomplice in vandalism. He and Elgin's hired crew were using small saws and chisels to take some of the marbles. Soon, Lucieri requested huge saws to cut up larger pieces of the marbles to more easily transport them. Nagel grieves that the Earl of Elgin and his team of artists have shouldered the blame for purportedly despoiling the Parthenon. Maybe she should watch BBS. A Nova episode called Secrets of the Parthenon shares that, quote, Lord Elgin and his men elected to cut the back halves off many of the sculptures to lighten the load for shipment to England. Vretos writes, during the strenuous weeks that followed, Lord Elgin pulled down every important sculpture and frieze from the Parthenon. That sounds like the definition of despoiling. Greek laborers were employed to carry the statues and load them onto the carts for transport to the seaport. Vretos quotes a witness at the port of Piraeus describing the Greeks laying down the marbles and refusing to pick them back up. Quote, protesting they could hear the doleful moan of Athena deep within each vein of marble. Elgin called them the superstitious offspring of weak and deluded minds. Elgin, in fact, repeatedly voiced his contempt for the Greek people, the descendants of those who created the marbles. Elgin rode in his carriage to the streets of what Vretos describes as the carnage of Athens, the broken pieces of its history left behind the pillaging, scanning the ruins for more he could take. Based on reading Elgin's diaries and letters, Vretos says, it disturbed Lord Elgin when he received no applause from the inhabitants, and he was particularly upset by their scornful looks. Why, thank you, white overlord, for pillaging our culture. They hated Elgin for what he was doing, but they didn't dare interfere and bring down the ire of the Ottoman authorities. Nobody wants their kids sold into slavery. But they did begin to protest the continued destruction of the Parthenon, prompting Elgin to state modern Greeks were nothing like classical Greeks. In his words, in fact, they had nothing whatsoever in common with them and for centuries had permitted the Turks to enslave them. These same Greeks look upon the superb works of Phidias, that was the great Greek sculpture, sculptor who designed the Parthenon, looked upon the superb works of Phidias with ingratitude and indifference. They did not deserve them, but Elgin did. Subjugated Greeks tried to protect and prevent the removal of a number of the treasures Elgin stole and were set upon by the Turkish soldiers accompanying him. How dare they try to protect their heritage when he wanted to decorate his gardens? And they had allowed themselves to be enslaved. So does that mean British prisoners of war allowed themselves to be incarcerated? British soldiers killed in war were just laying down? Elgin was in fact later incarcerated by the French, which I find hilarious. I don't see the logic here. Brits were enslaved by warlords pre-Roman Empire and enslaved by the Romans during their conquest of Britain and the Anglo-Saxons in the seventh century. And the 13th and 14th century wars between England and Scotland ended in England quashing the independence movement of Lord Elgin's homeland. What are you talking about, Malacca? Elgin Malacca. Elgin instructed his minions to take half of what was left of the Parthenon frieze from the inside upper wall of the temple. 15 of the total of 92 metopes, I'm assuming the ones less damaged, 17 statues from the pediments, those triangular structures that were framed by the front and back of the roof containing larger than life-size statues, 
along with many of the marbles inside of the temple. He also looted parts of the other ancient monuments of the Acropolis. Nagel's research, apparently mostly restricted to the diaries and letters of the wealthy, very sheltered Lady Elgin claims, Elgin didn't plan on removing the relics until he saw the bad state of the Parthenon. Then, she says, Sultan Selim gave Elgin written carte blanche to extract the reliefs from the side of the Parthenon, which contradicts the aforementioned translation of the Furman. And if Nagel had read a little further, she could have easily found Elgin's letters stating his desire to take possession of the marbles long before he visited the Parthenon. In fact, once he was finally given permission to enter and examine the Parthenon, he eagerly wrote to one of his most trusted minions, Reverend Hunt, I embark for Athens to plunder temples and commit sacrilege. And he personally didn't even see the Parthenon until almost of all of the pillaging was done. He'd left it to his workers. He'd had Hunt overseeing it. So he did see the bad state of the Parthenon after his crew was done with it. The firman given by the Sultan has been parsed and studied for over 200 years. Nowhere does it give carte blanche. Elgin himself admitted that later. And Nagel admits in her books that the most honorable Lord Elgin used his wife to flirt with and bribe the Turks at the site of the Parthenon when they first protested his removal of the marbles. And he used her again to beg British naval captains into illegally shipping the marbles on His Majesty's ships so Elgin wouldn't have to pay for private passage against Admiral Nelson's orders when the flirting didn't work on him. It's impossible to know and follow up on every detail when discussing history. You, you could research for years and years and years, but it does require some fact-checking. Naive, bullied, and belittled Lady Elgin's diaries only proved she was a product of the delusion of English supremacy and understood little regarding her husband's activities or the importance of the marbles to the Greeks. In fact, Christopher Hitchens, famous British journalist and advocate for the return of the marbles to Greece, states in his 2008 book, The Parthenon Marbles, The Case for Reunification, that the British government is and was well aware that Elgin took the marbles illegally. He refers to a letter written by Elgin in the government archives addressed to Prime Minister Spencer Percival in 1811. In it, Elgin admits, quote, I had no advantage from the Turkish government beyond the firman given equally to other English travelers. My successors in the embassy could not obtain permission for the removal of what I had not myself taken away. And on Mr. Adair's being officially instructed to apply in my favor, he understood the port denied that the persons who had sold those marbles to me had any right to dispose of them. Hitchin says, so here we have Lord Elgin in a signed letter to the Prime Minister admitting that he had acquired the marbles without the authority he was later to claim he possessed. Clark says, by the time he, Elgin, left, the lion's share of the sculptures attached to the Parthenon and many other magnificent objects from the Periclean age had been prized away for transport to Britain where Elgin hoped they would adorn Broom Hall. He says it was the removal from Athens of physical objects that brilliantly exemplified its genius. As Elgin was pillaging the Parthenon, minion and partner in crime, Edward Daniel Clark, with an E, a British clergyman and traveler, used the firman, or possibly an additional firman, I read in one reference that there were two, to steal a much revered and beloved statue of the goddess Demeter, goddess of the harvest, 
from the village of Ellipsis. The villagers rioted until, quote, the Turks subdued them. We can guess what that meant. Death and destruction for interfering with Ottoman orders. But even the wretched Clark with an E was appalled at the removal of the Parthenon marbles. He wrote, quote, one example may be mentioned which, while it shows the havoc that has been carried on, will also prove the want of taste and utter barbarism of the undertaking. He was referring to a horse's head positioned in the Parthenon so perfectly in one of the more dramatic scenes Phidias had composed that in Clark's opinion, its removal destroyed its very purpose for existing, taking it, quote, amounted to nothing less than its destruction. Could anyone believe that this was actually done and that it was done too in the name of a nation vain of its own distinction in the fine arts? Joan Breton Connolly, a classical archeologist and author of Parthenon Enigma, so during an interview with PBS NewsHour, the Parthenon sculptures were not made as standalone objects. They were made as part of a building that still stands in the middle of Athens today. Each piece, each sculpture was carefully created in relation to all the rest of the other sculptures and the structure of the Parthenon. The imagery, the beauty of it was in the whole. It had been damaged, yes, but most of it had survived. Most of the purpose of its creation was still visible and still touching everyone who viewed it. And Elgin, the self-appointed savior of great art, finished the job. He destroyed it. American financier Nicholas Biddle wrote of his visit to Athens in 1806 and gave his take on British looting and the attitude of the Ottomans against the Greeks. Christopher Hitchin writes, he observed the intolerable cruelty perpetrated against its citizens on behalf of the Sultan. And Hitchens quotes Biddle saying, the little Turkish despot gave both parties permission to remove artifacts with strategic forethought, a form of psychological warfare. Remove the heart of the city and you humble its people and demonstrate who is in control. Biddle was outraged. He said Elgin was taking advantage of the victimized people of Greece, and he was right. If it hadn't been for Britain's position as an ally of the Ottoman Empire, the empire that had control over the people of Greece, Elgin wouldn't have been able to pull any of this off, and he knew it. I'm going to quote Edward Clark a bit more, an Englishman with the ego and audacity to steal from a church, a clergyman himself, mind you, was stunned by Elgin's vandalism. He says, we saw this fine piece of sculpture raised from its station between the triglyphs, which were vertical panels of marble. A part of the adjoining masonry was loosened by the machinery, and down came the fine masses of pentelic marble, scattering their white marble with thundering noises amongst the ruins. He continues, observing the Turkish commander took his pipe out of his mouth, dropped a tear, and said to Lucieri, Telos. In Greek, Telos means the end. It was the end of the Parthenon. This is heartbreaking. And keep in mind, Elgin's big argument for what he'd done was that he was preserving Greek art. He destroyed so much of it. Even what he took was sawn in half, broken off the walls they were carved from, ripped from the context of the stories they told. The British Museum's argument for keeping the marbles is that the British are better able to care for them. We will torpedo that argument in the next episode. The museum claims the marbles would not have survived but for Elgin. Half of them did not survive because of Elgin. And this doesn't include the ship Elgin packed full of marble sculptures that sank 
shortly after it launched from the Greek shores on its way to England. Some of them were eventually recovered, but not all. Elgin, the British, were preserving Greek art? Really? Such was the barbarism, says historian Bruce Clark, that it shocked the Turkish fortress commander. The Turks, who cared nothing for the beauty of ancient Greece, were shocked by the destruction visited on the Parthenon and her treasures by Elgin. Even a member of the British consul protested his actions, and Elgin reported answer was, all Greeks are peasants. They did not deserve such wonderful works of antiquity. He said it was his divine calling to preserve these treasures onto all eyes. Oh, like the one you smashed up and sawed in half? The ones at the bottom of the sea, maybe? The arrogance. Very typical colonial British arrogance. There is even documentation at the time of Elgin rushing his crews to grab everything they could before somebody stopped them. Nagel, of course, informs her readers that Elgin's records show his careful intent not to strike any antiquities and that he firmly believed he was rescuing them from ruin. She then explains how carefully his team removed them. British traveler Edward Dodwell in Greece at the same time as Elgin records in his diaries, during my first tour of Greece, I had the inexpressible mortification of being present when the Parthenon was despoiled of its finest sculptures. He then describes the destruction of the edifice when beautifully ornate chunks of the building fell and shattered while Ametipi was removed. Quote, instead of the picturesque beauty and high preservation in which I first saw it, the Parthenon, it is now comparatively reduced to a state of shattered desolation. And Elgin was moving as fast as he could to loot everything he could. According to Vretos, he continued looting throughout the Greek countryside, instructing his minions in a letter to, quote, search every monastery in and around Athens. Yeah, let's pillage the monasteries. On his return trip to Constantinople to take up his responsibilities as ambassador, I assume, he raided islands in the Aegean for more loot, and he could not be stopped because he had a furman. What was the rush? Why so greedy? There were already rumblings of Greek insurrection against the Turks. The War of Independence was less than 20 years away, and everybody knew it was coming. When the Greeks threw off the Ottoman overlords, they would again lay claim to their heritage. And Elgin and everybody else knew, once the Greeks had control over their own territory, there would be no more priceless souvenirs. Frederick Sylvester North Douglas, a politician and a contemporary of Lord Elgin, wrote in his essay on certain points of resemblance between ancient and modern Greeks, because remember, Elgin said there, there's no relation, quote, the collecting class at any rate appeared to have understood their time of opportunity was not long. He further stated, it appears to me a very flagrant piece of injustice to deprive a helpless and friendly nation of any position, possession of value to them. But neither Elgin nor the British Parliament seems to have had a healthy sense of justice certainly not when it came to people they viewed as inferior. Member of Parliament John Bacon Sori Morit was in Athens in the spring of 1795, seven years before Elgin made his appearance there. His comment regarding Elgin's contempt for Greek love of the marbles, the Greeks were decidedly and strongly desirous that the marbles should not be removed from Athens. During the despoilation of the Parthenon, Lord Elgin's best toady, Reverend Hunt, tried to convince his boss to make off with the 
Cariatids at the nearby monument, the Erection. Fortunately, there weren't, they weren't able to secure another naval ship to carry all six. Elgin did steal one, though. She's in the British Museum. Hunt also settled on swiping the Lion Gate of Mycenae while out on scouting trips for Elgin, but its distance to the sea made it too difficult to transport. So they would have pillaged more if given the resources. Next week, we'll talk about the Parthenon marvels making their way to jolly old England, where Lord Elgin finagles to sell them off to the British Empire because he can't pay his debts. We'll discuss the 1816 Common Select Committee, where the purchase of the marbles was debated, the Brits who stood up for Greece against Elgin to no avail, and how the British Museum has actually done a less than adequate job of taking care of the marbles. Thanks for listening. Greek Like Me is a Stealth Greek production. This episode was researched, written, and narrated by me, your host, Pamela Diodes-Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Visit our website at stealthgreek.com for resources, photos, links, and more. Please rate, like, and subscribe. It helps us get noticed so we can keep making content about Greeks and Greek culture. Find Greek Like Me on Facebook or on Instagram at greek underscore like underscore me. See you next time. Yes, us.